Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On our program tonight, with the federal election in the rearview mirror, the focus now is shifting to how political leaders will make the new minority parliament work and how long it might last, and how long some leaders might last. Aaron O'Toole now facing a petition inside the party to see him removed as conservative leader. Our political commentators will be here to discuss that. And proof of vaccination rules kick in today in Ontario and New Brunswick. We'll look at the new rules and why they've been introduced with this expert. And we'll also get the view from this business leader who's not happy that small businesses have to enforce the rules and not convinced they'll actually be effective. But let's begin with the latest uh, post-election developments. We know the Liberals won another minority government on Monday night after a sometimes nasty and divisive election campaign. And now Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole is facing the first public challenge to his leadership from one of the party's senior national councillors. He's Bert Chen from British Columbia, and he's with me now. Uh, Mr. Chen, uh, good to see you. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Um, you've organized an online petition asking for a referendum on recalling Aaron O'Toole as party leader. Uh, why do you believe he should be removed as the leader of the Conservatives? Well, uh, thank you, Peter, for having me on. Um, I actually represent Ontario members of the Conservative Party. Just happened to be uh, in uh, beautiful British Columbia today. Um, my uh, my petition here is an effort to give the members of the Conservative Party a voice, a voice that I have heard over uh, countless months uh, since uh, Mr. O'Toole's positions changed from his uh, leadership race uh, more than a year ago. Um, conservatives feel betrayed. Conservatives feel lied to by Mr. O'Toole in that he first promised uh, that he would uphold and be a true blue conservative, but he did nothing of the sort in the recent election campaign. He flip-flopped on positions, and the feedback I've heard from uh, from members of our party that I represent and I'm elected to represent as a volunteer councillor is that Mr. O'Toole must be held accountable in a leadership review as the earliest opportunity. Okay, which which particular uh, um, issues did he flip flop on? What which particular key issues do you take exception with about how the way he may have presented himself in the in the party leadership race and how he actually presented himself to Canadians on the campaign? Well, there's a very long list, but the first one is that the Conservative Party believes in fiscal responsibility. Um, the plan that he put forward uh, was not responsible at all. And in fact, in many ways, uh, it was less responsible than even the Liberal plan. Um, second, uh, I think to a lot of members of our party, uh, the flip-flop on the carbon tax, where he pledged uh, in the leadership race that he would not introduce carbon pricing, uh, at all, uh, or a carbon tax, and to, to actually do so for the campaign, one um, I think is a betrayal of our membership uh, to our membership uh, and those who uh, who elected him. Okay, uh, so uh, let me ask you this: If if you don't approve of Mr. O O'Toole's platform and the way he's uh, flip flopped, as you put it, what what if he had won? Would you still be asking for his removal as leader? I think I, I think the issue isn't so much that he has the right as the leader to put forward his ideas. However, he does not have a right to mislead the conservative members who elected him, and he has a duty to be accountable to the members, and by not having an opportunity to otherwise review his leadership until the next scheduled convention, which is more than two years away, um, is not ample time 
uh, considering the results of the last election. Right, but I'm at, if, if he had won the election, would you still be challenging his leadership? Uh, I believe that he has the right to uh, form government as a prime minister designate. And I think, uh, uh, you know, that would mean a resounding amount of Canadians had voted for him. He has failed on every metric uh, since election night. He has come short on seats with uh, Andrew Scheer, uh, compared to Andrew Scheer in 2019. And uh, if Mr. Scheer uh, resigned, then I believe uh, Mr. O'Toole should uh, at least uh, consider the same thing. He says he's going to conduct a review. He's already launched that review of what worked and what didn't work. Uh, there's an election, he says, coming up. He says Justin Trudeau's threatened one. Um, so why aren't you willing to wait for him to do that review in the context of another possible snap election with a minority government? Uh, honestly, it's about integrity and it's about uh, true intentions. And if I felt that this review would actually amount to something uh, for lessons learned from Mr. O'Toole to respect our members across the country, uh, then I, I would allow that process to unfold. However, I'm not I'm not confident. Neither are the members that I represent. Uh, the party president, Rob Batherson, is challenging the petition, says its validity mm -hmm. as an online petition isn't part of the leadership review process. It could be hacked and manipulated by non-conservative members and that the review process shouldn't be initiated, can't be initiated, initiated rather, until that policy convention you mentioned in 2023. What do you say to that? Well, I think uh, we're in uncharted waters. The Conservative Party has never had an internal petition or referendum uh, amongst our membership since our founding. Um, I think Mr. Bafferson, in his right as the chair of National Council as the president, um, has an interpretation of how that uh, process can unfold. But as a National Councillor myself, I have the right to consult with members I have the right to consult with the members uh, that I represent and see where their views are. And the petition is just the beginning of uh, that long process to have a referendum. All right. Uh, Bert Chen, uh, thanks so much. And uh, look, it's good you cleared up. You represent uh, conservatives from Ontario. You happen to be in British Columbia. So I'm glad you uh, straightened that out for me. Uh, thanks for your time tonight. Appreciate it. Great. Thank you so much, Pierre. So Aaron O'Toole could be in for a rough ride as conservative leader from his own party for his policy platform and his failure to win. And now that the election's out of the way, the prime minister is facing pressure from the premiers to deliver on campaign promises, all the while staying out of provincial jurisdiction. There's a lot of people in Ontario that supported the prime minister. And now it's time for the prime minister. He made a lot of promises to support the people of Ontario. And make no mistake about it, I'm going to be right on the right in, right in the front line of making sure that uh, all those promises uh, he's committed to, uh, he fulfills them. Well, let's follow up now with three party commentators. Greg McEachern is a liberal commentator. Alim Kanji is a conservative commentator. And Kia Vashnajafi is an NDP commentator. It's good to see you all. Uh, thanks for being here, gentlemen. Uh, Alim, let me start with you. Uh, this online petition from a member of the Conservative National Council uh, just spoke with Bert Chen, who says he's had enough of Aaron O'Toole. Uh, Aaron O'Toole has broken his promises to party members that he's got to go, and he doesn't want to wait till a, uh, a, a policy a convention review coming up in 2023. Are, are we going to hear more of this, and how difficult is it going to be for Aaron O'Toole to stay on as party leader? Well, listen, Peter, first of all, thanks for uh, allowing me to spend some time with you on your show today. I should mention uh, to your viewers off the top, uh, I work with all parties. Um, I'm not a conservative. I'm not a liberal. I'm not an NDP. I'm a government relations professional, and I do work with all parties. Okay. Now, I will tell you this, and, and uh, I'm going to give you a good opening line, and, and hopefully your viewers uh, stay, stay tuned to this. Liberals generally stab each other in the back. Conservatives like to do it in plain view, right in the heart. 
Okay, so I'm going to begin with that. So it's 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 no surprise that conservatives are calling for Mr. O'Toole's head uh, this early on. I mean, literally hours after the election. I believe Mr. O'Toole, uh, really at this at this infancy, in going through an election that was was called. Uh, obviously, um, in, in a very short period of time, he doesn't really have a grip on his own party uh, just yet. I don't think he's built a wide enough base yet. And we can talk about that uh, and why. But this is all part of what the Liberals tried to do uh, in terms of, of, of uh, characterizing and framing him up. Um, no, but, this, but, but hang on, Liam. This, this comes from a member of the Conservative National Council. He's, the, regardless of the, his point is this. Aaron O'Toole campaigned on one thing to win the party leadership and campaigned on yeah. something completely different for Canadians. And for that, he should be gone because uh, he flip-flopped with Conservative members. Uh, how do you see that? Uh, he could be part of the Conservative Council. He could be an MP. He could be whoever he says he is. It doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is, is that he has, I believe, presented better than expected to the average Canadian in the very short amount of time. And he should be afforded more time. Okay. They would be unwise to kick him out so quickly. Uh, so I, I don't put much stock into that. And I expect Aaron O'Toole to be leading the Conservatives in the next election. And I would okay. peg that at 18 to 24 months from now. All right, Greg McEachern, Justin Trudeau may face some internal criticism too, but we haven't heard it break open if it's happening uh, just yet. Calls for his removal perhaps at some point as Liberal leader. What do you think the future holds for Aaron O'Toole? Wow, I, I didn't realize the Liberals were, were behind this uh, this already. I, I mean, you, you said it, Peter. Uh, this is coming from, the call is coming from inside the House, the Conservative House here. We shouldn't be surprised because in the waning days of the election, particularly in the Toronto Star, there were, you know, senior sources around conservative campaign were very upset with Mr. O'Toole. I mean, one of the things that really stands out for me during the election is is the, the uh, in the first debate, the French debate on um, assault weapons, uh, Mr. O'Toole said something. It caught the ear of Mr. Trudeau. He pointed out page 90. And then for five days following, Mr. O'Toole had to answer questions about their position, which seemed to be involve, evolving. And the first for me was seeing a platform being edited well into the, the campaign. Yeah. So I don't think we should be surprised. It's not the Liberals. But in terms of defining your opponent, ask Mr. Ignatieff and Mr. Dion about that. The Conservatives were really good at that. That's politics. All right. Welcome uh, to the NFL. Okay. Kivash Najafi, uh, Jagmeet Singh says he has no concerns about uh, his job security. He didn't win the election either, but uh, he did get an extra seat. But he, he didn't stray from NDP policies and promises. And do you think that's the problem for Aaron O'Toole here, that, that he sold one things to conservatives uh, to win the leadership and then was selling something different on the campaign trail? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, um, the risk that Aaron O'Toole took was that he campaigned to the right in order to win uh, leadership. He campaigned in the center trying to win as prime minister. And I think that, you know, he did well, <laughs> all things considered. He started this campaign in a significantly worse place and, and he was able to, you know, maintain the, the conservative caucus, the size of it. Um, but uh, it is a break from the traditional conservative values. He he said, this is not the Conservative Party, your dad's Conservative Party. I mean, he did things that would make the Conservatives more appealing to mm -hmm. people who don't consider and vote Conservatives. But he did so at the cost of breaking away from his base. Um, and, you know, I was a New Democrat staffer when Tom Mulcair tried to do some of that in the 2015 election. And it doesn't go well. It's not just the results of your, your party, uh, your election. 
election, but what your party stands for is going to be pretty important. All right. Uh, Aleem Kanji, let me turn back to you. Aaron O'Toole is making the case, uh, and you've touched on it here, uh, that he, we could be in for another election in, in 18 months or so. Justin Trudeau is suggesting as much of voters choose another minor, uh, minority government during the campaign. So should election timing here dictate how the Conservatives operate in the next parliament, or should they be looking to try and uh, make it work as long as possible? Theoretically, of course, it should, but that's not going to happen, right? You're going to see, as we see in all minority governments, uh, you know, uh, a fall after a short period of time, uh, you know, because of a budget or some 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 major issue uh, that that is is going to uh, uh, dictate us going going back to the polls. You know, I think for the Conservatives, you know, when when you look at the history here, right? Like this is a merger of a couple of factions, a couple of parties. You've got. You've got the fiscal conservatives and you've got the social conservatives and the latter really holding um, sort of a disproportionate amount of influence, particularly on party policy. And, you know, perhaps the conservatives can take a page out of we look at our our friends across the pond uh, in the UK. Uh, and uh, David Cameron's a great, great example of that. Um, mm. They really uh, repositioned the party around uh, leadership around climate change. We yeah. saw that obviously with with uh, with Aaron O'Toole and his party, uh, foreign aid, uh, domestic health spending, not so much. These are things that really allowed uh, David Cameron to sort of catapult his his position, and okay. it gave him the cover uh, for for um, for for governing. Uh, you know, moving moving forward. Right. I mean, it's and, always, and, it's, it's, yeah, I have to jump. It's, I mean, it's always a challenge for party leaders to manage the different factions. But you know, clearly, Aaron O'Toole yeah. would know the factions he was dealing with when he was going to make this pivot in policy. But uh, Greg, let me turn to you. Uh, Yves Francois Blanchet, the bloc leader. Let's get everybody into the conversation. He he says uh, all the leaders. He wants to sit them all down uh, as soon as possible and uh, chart a path forward on major issues they can all agree upon. Uh, and he says, look, let, let's look at a timeline of three years before the next election, at least in a minority parliament. Maybe wishful thinking, but what are the top issues where the Liberals could easily find a, a dance partner and move ahead an agenda uh, in, you know, uh, in the next uh, uh, number of months here when Parliament gets back to work? Well, I think one of the easier ones would be around childcare. There's a number of deals that have already been struck with some provinces. We've heard that uh, Premier Ford in Ontario is now willing to chat about it as well. Obviously, Quebec has really set the, the path on, on child care. We know that the, the NDP would be on board um, with this. I think the Conservatives need to take a look at some of the voices from business that were um, pro uh, a child care pro, uh, program. Um, one Another one to watch that may, may be a bit more divisive is if we are looking at a, a free trade deal with the UK um, you know, post-Brexit. Uh, uh, it'll be interesting to see this government has a good track record in terms of handling Donald Trump around trade, but now they may have to look at some of the opposition parties as they negotiate okay. with, with the UK. Uh, Kiyavash, uh, should we expect the NDP to be the main dance partner for the Liberals again in the new parliament? I sure hope so. There is plenty of areas where they can cooperate. Uh, and I think Jagmeet Singh proved it in the last parliament that he was more focused on making progress on those issues uh, than, rather than, uh, you know, going to another election. Um, he'd be ready for it, but I don't think that's what Canadians want, and that's not something that he would want. Uh, you know, I, I noticed that if Francois Blanchet talked about three years, I absolutely don't see any reason why this parliament can't last for four years if Mr. Trudeau is 
is willing to take the leadership to bring the parties together. Okay, uh, pretty, we'll have a willing I, dance partner. Let me, let me quickly to all of you, pretty quick answers on, on this question. Uh, premiers are jumping back in now after the election. Uh, some were doing it during the election, pressing their demands for increased autonomy, really over health funding. They want $28 billion uh, right now, no strings attached. And uh, I, I guess I'm wondering, Aleem, uh, should the prime minister... ASAP here. This fall, should he be calling a first minister's meeting? And I need all of you to do this in about uh, 20 seconds or so. In 20 seconds? No, no question. He should be doing that. Uh, and there's tough issues to to, to get through, um, uh, to get deals with, with the government. I want to come back to your, your last question. I know you asked for 20 got, seconds, yeah, but yeah. I think... Okay, got 10 seconds. <laughs> Why don't you go forward, and I'll come back to my point. We can go to the next panelist. Yeah, okay, all right. Uh, Greg, let me hear from you here. Do, do we need a first minister's conference soon? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. We're still got provinces like Alberta, Saskatchewan, struggling with, with COVID. And just for fun and mischief, after Legault endorsed the, the Conservatives, he's taken a lot of heat in media this week. That'll be just fun to watch. Uh, right, Kiyavash, let me hear from you, final comment. Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely a good idea to talk to the provinces. I just hope that once, since during this election, we learned from the Liberals that provincial jurisdiction is not the sacred cow that nobody is allowed to touch. Hopefully, going forward, we can stop uh, using provincial jurisdiction as an excuse to not get results for people. All right. Uh, that's our time. I really appreciate all of you uh, taking the time to speak with me and uh, hope we can do it again soon. All of you take care. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks, Peter. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks, Peter. The Ontario Premier was also talking today about the new vaccine passport system rolling out in Ontario. New Brunswick also has its own system. It came into effect as of today as well. The rules in Ontario require people who are eligible for a COVID-19 vaccine to show proof of vaccination before entering non-essential indoor spaces. Those spaces include dine-in restaurants, gyms, sport uh, events, movie theatres and clubs along with bars. Customers must present proof, either paper or electronic receipts, of full vaccination along with identification before being allowed to enter. The province is also working on a vaccine passport app ready for later this fall. The rules will not apply to outdoor patios or retail stores. Children under 12 are exempt, as are people who have proof of a medical exemption. Violating the requirements could result in fines starting at $750. Today, Premier Ford defended the need for the vaccine passports, even though he's not a big fan and insisted there'll be a temporary measure. There's no secret. You know, I, I was reluctant. Uh, I was reluctant because I, I just don't believe in government dictating to people how to live their lives, run their businesses, and saying that this is a special circumstance. This is a special circumstance that the whole world has faced and and uh, every, every premier in this province. So I want to, you know, move forward with this. But I don't want to do it a day longer than we have to. Well, let's get some insight now on the need for vaccine passports and what effect they could have on curbing COVID outbreaks. Raywat Dionandan is an epidemiologist and associate professor at the University of Ottawa. He's been a frequent guest on CPAC and he joins me again this evening. Uh, professor uh, Dionandan, good to see you again. Thanks for taking time to speak with me today. Uh, what is the objective of vaccine passports? It's a good question. There are at least three objectives that I can see. First is to incentivize vaccine uptake. 
that's got to be the priority here because we can't start having the herd immunity conversation until we get probably over 90% of the population immunized and we're not anywhere near there yet. So we have to incentivize a certain segment of the vaccine hesitant to seek vaccination. That's number one. Number two is to keep the unvaccinated out of super spreading environments like indoor dining and gyms and so forth. If they're not there, they can't spread to each other and they can't create clusters of outbreaks and therefore burden our healthcare system. Number three is to keep the businesses open. So if the businesses are not home to super spreading events, they can probably stay open longer. So those are the main reasons. I would add a fourth reason possibly is to prevent the, uh, the likelihood of breakthrough infections amongst the vaccinated. If they're less likely to be exposed to unvaccinated carriers, they're less likely to experience breakthrough infections. That's a lesser important reason. Right. We're going to hear in a, in a few moments here some of the objections from the some members of the business community aren't crazy about the passport approach. But um, why are vaccine passports, you think, the best way to get to higher vaccination rates? We talked about some of the objectives, but People talk about, look, what, what about education? But uh, why are passports the way to go? Well, you need all the tools, first of all. Education, incentivizations, disincentives as well. The thing about vaccine passports is that they target a particular segment of the vaccine resistant. That includes the anti-vaxxers, who are a hardcore group, and it's a kind of religion. Now that you know how to talk to religious people, and that's that way. There are the vaccine hesitant, who need more reassurance about the safety of vaccines. There are those who need time off work or time for childcare in order to seek vaccination. But there are the apathetic. The apathetic tend to be a younger demographic who have a lot of confidence in their immune systems and don't see a reason to seek vaccination, but don't have anything philosophically against vaccination. That's the group that vaccine passports do the best with, because suddenly they have an incentive to seek vaccination. And maybe it wasn't a priority before, but now it suddenly is a priority. Right. Uh, there have been uh, 295,000 more vaccines administered in Ontario since uh, the early, early September when people knew the passports were going to be coming. Uh, still nearly 2 million Ontarians who haven't had a dose. I think it's uh, 1.8 million. How confident are you the passport approach will drive the vaccination numbers up? It'll drive them up. The question is, will they drive them up significantly and sufficiently for us to, again, have that herd immunity conversation? Might not. It's just one tool in a panoply of tools available to us that include uh, education, that include possibly financial reward, as some American states have been playing with, even though that's not my ideal scenario. But the passports, if they don't succeed in optimally improving vaccine uptake, at the very least, will keep businesses open, which is a win in and of itself. What's the expert thinking now on what will constitute uh, herd immunity as we see some of these variants and changes in COVID-19? First of all, you don't know if you've reached it until you've reached it and stayed there for a while. Second of all, you might probably dip in and out of it because immunity is not evenly distributed across the population. But that threshold depends on really the transmissibility of the virus and the effectiveness of the vaccines. And Delta is hypertransmissible and has diminished the effectiveness of the vaccines a little bit. So some back of the envelope calculations suggest probably over 90% need to be immunized. That means you don't get there until children start getting immunized. Mm. And we might not get there at all, uh, and maybe we'll get there through a combination of vaccination and recovery from natural infection. Uh, let's finish on this because we've seen the uh, uh, we've seen the debate unfold over this in, in the country. And at some points, it's been very divisive. And I know you've uh, you've done a lot of study on on uh, immuno epidemiology and populations and so on. And I guess I'm wondering is there is there a danger in um, what some people will see as dividing a society that way, limiting the rights or privileges of people who don't want to get vaccinated uh, for whatever reason? 
Totally. There's a lot of dangers here. We have to do this very carefully and sensitively and empathetically. And so it's important that people know that no one's rights are being constricted or constrained here because essential services are open to everybody and vaccination is accessible by everyone. No one's being discriminated based upon their innate physical characteristics, but by a choice, the same way we choose to get a driver's license and choose to cross when the light is green, mm. right? So as long as that choice is available, it's not discriminatory. But yes, we must be sensitive to the divisions that we create. Professor Raywad Dionand, and uh, always good to talk to you. Thanks again for speaking with me tonight. Thank you very much. Well, there remains a lot of uncertainty uh, about exactly how the vaccine passport system will work and how effective it will be. It's also a new responsibility and maybe even an additional cost for small businesses in this country. We'll have to police the passports at the door. Dan Kelly is the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. He joins me now from uh, Surrey, British Columbia. Dan Kelly, good to see you again. Uh, Happy good to be with you. Yeah, good to speak with you about these vaccine passports launched. They've now been launched in Ontario, New Brunswick. Uh, they're already in place in Quebec. Um, what have you been hearing from your members about their challenges in trying to implement these systems? Well, look, small business owners are fairly split on whether there should be passports at all. Um, some businesses, of course, see that this is an opportunity to avoid lockdowns. Business owners would rather serve 80% of their, their customers rather than 0% with a full lockdown. But a lot of business owners have big concerns. About a third of our membership, I think, reject the idea on, on a point of principle that this is just a big intrusion into people's lives, into to, to their responsibilities. But most have practical concerns and questions that have been unanswered well, what are from those? government. What are those? A lot of them around are, are around employees. So you have an employee that, like a personal trainer, uh, after their shift, are they, are they allowed to, uh, they're not vaccinated, are they allowed after working all day uh, as there's no requirement for employees to be vaccinated, are they able to use the services in the gym in which they've spent the entire day? Can a restaurant worker who might be unvaccinated, we know that they can serve the plate two inches from your face, but they're not allowed to eat there, we don't believe, on their lunch break. Mm. Um, a lot of practical con uh, questions about what will happen in the event of something going wrong. So an unvaccinated customer is unhappy about being turned away. Uh, the health minister originally said, call the police. The police then said, hey, hey, wait a minute, don't do that. What does that 18 yeah. or 19 year old host or hostess do? These are questions that business owners don't have great answers for uh, right now. And certainly the provincial government hasn't been coming up with much. Doug Ford said today, look, it was the Chamber of Commerce in Ontario and the Restaurant Association in Ontario that clamored for the vaccine passport system. He says he's doing this reluctantly on the advice of the health experts. So does the business community want these passports? Well, our surveys of CFIB members, small business owners that are part of, of my association, uh, were, were split, but the majority said no, they, they don't want that to happen for, for, for customers in their businesses. There was support for vaccine passports for international travel, perhaps for large events, but when it breaks down to small business activities, either for staff or for, or for customers, uh, most businesses are quite reluctant to become the vaccine police. You seem, you seem to uh, raise the issue of uh, effectiveness this morning, if I can call up. Uh, you tweeted this morning as you waited for your flight to Vancouver about the check of your proof of vaccination and how that was done in the, in the lounge and in the airport and how it raised questions for you. What happened? So, you know, I'm, I'm going, to the, going to the airport, went into the lounge to grab uh, a cup of coffee, and as I walked in, they, they did dutifully check my, <laughs> my vaccine credential with my boarding pass. 
Um, but I can tell you, the, it was, you know, it's this big. Uh, the woman glanced at it, uh, and I suspect that that's what's happening in a lot of businesses right now, that this is only going to be at best loosely enforced uh, because it's really hard to get this right. This is now a month, we're a month away from having a, a, some form of QR code that businesses might have a little bit of help to use. Uh, but right now, a business owner, a business is going to have to hire, in many cases, an additional staff person to do the screening, standing at the front of their business, putting, putting their own life at risk to turn away somebody that might be quite unhappy about this, then have to screen their credentials, scanning and sorting through their phone. On top of that, if that person has a medical exemption, then they have to try to make, make, make out whether or not this doctor okay. is legit. I don't know. Hmm. All right. Doug Ford also said today he'll listen to the health experts before lifting any capacity limits on businesses, even though, um, you know, they're, they're, uh, the clients have to prove they're vaccinated, double vaccinated. Um, are you OK with that or should should the passports be in lockstep with, OK, if we're getting all these people got to show they're vaccinated, should we have more space in our uh, businesses to be able to uh, earn some of the money we've lost? Yeah, look, I mean, we are now taking me putting measures on top of measures on top of other measures. One would have thought that if they were putting in place the, re the requirement that only vaccinated customers were able to enter their businesses altogether, that the capacity restrictions would be lifted. Hmm. But Ontario is doing both. They have a 50% capacity restriction on movie theaters, on bowling alleys, arts and entertainment venues, and now everybody in there has to be fully vaccinated. I don't know, it, it, it feels like, you know, think about this. A business that might have been closed for 400 days during the lockdown now is is only allowed to serve up to 50% of their customers and as of today has a 20% further drop in customers because they're not able to serve the unvaccinated. That's a lot without a nickel of new money and the federal government ripping away the wage and the rent subsidy very, very soon. All right. Uh, we'll continue to watch how this unfolds. Dan Kelly, uh, good to get your uh, perspective uh, tonight. Thanks for taking time. Anytime. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Peter Van Dusen. From all of us here at CPAC, thanks again for watching, and I will see you next time. Take care.